Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going we're gonna to be in the book of Ruth. We are finishing the book of Ruth this morning. We're going to be uh, covering the entirety of chapter 4. And time is certainly against me, but we will make this happen. Good to see you this morning. Looking forward to being with you and being in God's Word again today. Uh, if you're using a chair Bible, uh, it's around page 210. Uh, if you're using your own Bible, you're not familiar with where Ruth is, it's the eighth book in your Bible. If you move from left to right, it's a smaller book, so don't move too fast if you're flipping pages. It goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Let me pray, just in anticipation of God meeting us now as, as we open his word. God, thank you for uh, the journey over the last, what now will be four weeks in this book. Uh, thank you for the, the varied ways that you use the different types of literature uh, in your word that you preserve for us to instruct us, to teach us, to rebuke us, to train us for godliness, and to make us more like your son. And God, I pray this morning as we read Ruth chapter 4, that you would teach us once again, that through the power of your spirit, that you'd convict us of sin and of righteousness, and God, that you would uh, mold us in your image. Help us to be hungry now to hear from you, despite what we may have brought in that might stand as a barrier to us to hear from you. I pray, God, by your grace and by your mercy and through your power that you would remove those things that we hear clearly from your voice, now through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> uh, yesterday, as I was, uh, I was praying for our time today and just kind of in general, you know, one of the things I find myself praying often, and you may relate to this, is, uh, and, and it's really kind of a prayer of recollection, and it's essentially this, that God, you never change. Um, there's a lot of comfort found in knowing that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he still does today what he's done always. He's always faithful. And so for us, as we come to God's word this morning, and maybe as you face particular challenges in your own life, you can feel really deeply that God is able, like he always has been, he always will be able to do the very things that are impossible for us to do, that what's impossible with men is possible with God. Amen? That's an encouragement for us. And and so God is still able, just like he has throughout history, to rescue the hopeless and the helpless. And there's many ways in which that could be an apt summary of the book of Ruth and where we're going to land is kind of our main point of emphasis this morning, is that Ruth reminds us that God rescues the, the helpless and the hopeless. And so you may not consider yourself helpless and hopeless this morning, circumstantially or otherwise, emotionally, you might not feel that way. But theologically, even if you don't feel that way, it's still very true of every single one of us that apart from God's gracious intervention, that we are truly helpless and hopeless. But praise God, he's the rescuer of the helpless and the hopeless, amen? Does that encourage you this morning? I'll trust where you didn't say amen loudly, you said it loudly in your heart. All right, we gotta grow in that. All right, so last week as we uh, journeyed through chapter 3, uh, we, we observed Ruth and Boaz's love for one another. You know, Ruth appealed to Boaz, essentially an appeal to his authority to redeem her, which we'll get back into in just a moment, what that means if you weren't with us last week. Boaz being one who could protect and shield and provide for her and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Boaz speaks words of comfort and assurance to Ruth. 
But he also tells Ruth there's a complicating factor. There's another redeemer. If you're in chapter 4, if you look to your left in chapter 3 in verse 12, just a, a quick recap. In Boaz's response to Ruth's appeal to him to redeem her, he says this in verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. So he goes on to say, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And chapter 3 ends with Naomi just confidently asserting that Boaz is going to do what he said he's going to do. He's going to take care of the matter swiftly. In verse 18 in chapter 3, Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so chapter 4 begins with just that. Boaz doing exactly what he said he would do, seemingly in the morning right after he met with Ruth in this midnight encounter. You can go back to last week if you want to learn more about that. But he goes immediately to the gate. This is another of many factors just kind of commending us to the character of Boaz. His faithful follow-through on what he said he was going to do. We find him not even in a turn of page, just a drop down doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And you look in chapter 4, it says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And so it paused there just for a moment. So in culturally, the gate of the city was a place where you did business, like judicial and business matters were taken care of at the gate of the city. And so Boaz goes and he situates himself in that official place of business. And he doesn't try to manipulate the situation. He's not heavy handed. He doesn't force his way to get what he wants or somehow strong arm this other redeemer, but he, but he goes and he sits and he, and he waits. He sat and he waited for the courage of the Lord as the Lord provided his answer. In verse two, and behold, actually later in verse one, and behold the redeemer. We've seen this word previously. It's a little bit like, hey, and look at that. Like, and behold, the redeemer he spoke of comes along right at the time he sits down to do this official business. The redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he, Boaz, took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So as soon as Boaz sits down, the redeemer comes by. And at this moment, we have to remember there's, there's two different customs kind of colliding in this moment that we have to understand in order to figure out what exactly is happening. So this redeemer, as well as Boaz himself, occupy this space in the family line of kinsmen redeemers. So they have the authority and the ability and responsibility to re redeem from a property standpoint and from a family line standpoint, the line of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. So right now we're going to see both of these things collide. So first is property redemption. So read verses 3 and 4. It says, Then he said to the Redeemer, this is Boaz, again speaking to this other Redeemer, the one that was further in the pecking line or above him in the family line. And he says this to the other Redeemer, Naomi, has, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. 
But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there's no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the other redeemer, said, I will redeem it. So the other redeemer is quickly favorable to redeeming the property. So a piece of land, as it were. Naomi's going to sell it, assumedly because of her poverty, to try to better her position. So the redeemer has the opportunity and the, the structure within the law of Israel and the customs of Israel to come in and purchase that land, to keep the land in the family line. It was a relatively significant thing for land to remain in the tribe, in the family. So I'm sorry, Boaz and this other redeemer have the authority and the power to redeem that land as those who are related to Elimelech. And so, I mean, why not? Like you, you give the chance to buy a piece of land as a right and responsibility, like he's going to jump on. He's like, hey, I'll, I'll take it. I'll redeem it. I'll do just what you, what you said. But this is where Boaz shows some business savvy. He's like, okay, you'll redeem the land. There's just one other detail you should know. Verse 5 and 6, let's read that together. In verse 5, it says, Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So this is the second of the customs. It's called levirate marriage. So in Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy chapter 25, these two customs are explained. And so for someone, so a widow who doesn't have a child, there would be a, a lot of times a brother, a near kinsman who could come and marry her and propagate children so that the, the name of that descendant wasn't cut off in the family line. So that's the other custom. You have property and you have by marriage the continuation of a person's name. And so when this other redeemer is confronted with, oh, it's, it's not just a piece of land. I actually get a wife with this deal. He's like, look, um, I'm going to tap out at that. Like it was easy enough. And there's not a whole lot of detail as to why. It could be that he was married otherwise. There's no indication of that. But certainly what we, what we can infer is that the cost was too great. Because there, there is certainly going to be a cost associated with taking on two widows. Making one of them, namely Ruth, as the younger one, his wife. But he goes on to say that I can't do it because it will impair my inheritance. One commentator said this. He says, if there were, were to be a child from the relationship with Ruth, the redeemer would lose the field and there would be no benefit to his own children and estate to compensate for the costs involved in taking care of Naomi and Ruth. In other words, Mr. So-and-so, which I love that title, was interested in ministry to the poor only if there was a payoff for himself and his family. Now, it sounds kind of funny, the Mr. So-and-so. The reality is, is in the book of Ruth, this other redeemer does not have a name. And it's notable that the faithful, sacrificial redeemer, Boaz, we know his name. At the end of this story, we're going to see that there's a way in which the name and the renown of Boaz is part of the whole culmination of this story. But you have a, 
a, a Mr. So-and-so, some so-called redeemer that doesn't step up and take responsibility and his name just kind of is blurred in the lines of history. It's interesting, isn't it? What he selfishly refused, Boaz selflessly redeemed. So this is a moment of contrasting redeemers. The other guy saw the price he'd have to pay and he was unwilling to make it. Boaz still had to pay a price, but he thought little of making that sacrifice if it meant that he got the one that he loved, namely Ruth. This is one of the many ways we see a, a picture of Jesus in Boaz. We talked about the last couple of weeks, like you read the story of Ruth and you, and you read about Boaz you read about Ruth and Boaz together and you read about them and you see things and, ob and observe things in their character that are worthy of emulation. But the, the, the greater story is found by looking through them, looking through them to a greater narrative and a greater story. And there's, in a sense, a greater, a greater Boaz, Jesus, the, the Redeemer. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, kind of pulling from this picture of Boaz thinking little of the sacrifice if it meant purchasing Ruth. Hebrews 12.2 says this, as we're commended ourselves as believers to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising or thinking little of the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It seems what we can gather in this connection, Boaz to Jesus, is that for Jesus Christ, the joy of purchasing his bride overshadowed the shame and the sacrifice of the cross. What a beautiful picture. That Jesus, as the bridegroom, purchases his bride, despises the shame, knowing full well what it would mean to go to Calvary, he despises, he thinks little of that cost if it means that he gets the bride in the end. And praise God for his willing sacrifice to pay the price for our redemption. And there's a way in Hebrews 12, in kind of like a full circle sort of way, Hebrews 12, at the, at the beginning of that, it commends us to look to Jesus. So we look through Boaz, we see Jesus in his work, and now we see Jesus' work and in the midst of our difficulty, we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a strengthening gaze for the people of God. So if you're struggling against flesh and blood and sin, and you're fighting the good fight of faith, one of the things we're called to do is look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He thought little of the cost if it meant in the end he gets us as his bride. So we're called to look to him if it means in the end that we get him. It's unbelievable. What a, what a sweet, circular, beautiful picture that we get in this moment with Boaz. Verse 7. Let's keep reading together. Verse 7, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. 
So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon, the two sons. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. And may you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, really synonymous of one another, Ephrathah and Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So in verse 10, Boaz redeems the land, and Boaz the Redeemer purchases Ruth as his bride. So Ruth and Naomi were possibly close by. It's hard to know, like if they were there, kind of watching this exchange. In some ways, it's, it's kind of fun to think that they might have been observing and maybe just with a like intense sense of suspense, wondering what the response was going to be from this other redeemer who could have ended up being Ruth's husband. But I like to think just kind of in a comical but sweet way, like what would seeing Boaz, this now one-sandaled man, would have elicited in the heart of Ruth and Naomi? Because they knew what that meant. One commentator talked about maybe he hid it behind his back. He came up and was like, hey, one sandal, like, look at that, you know. But the point being is that he did everything it took. And there was witnesses to that effect that this very day, that very same day, he purchased both the land and and Ruth as his wife. His act of redemption perpetuated life and blessing for the dead, Elimelech and Malon. The word perpetuate is used 628 times in the Old Testament. What's interesting is that in the book of Ruth, the same word, the word perpetuate in our text, three of the five times it's used in Ruth, it's translated arose or rose. So there's this interesting depiction for us. In other words, Boaz's act of redemption raised the name of the dead so he might have an inheritance and not be cut off without an inheritance. And the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, New Testament work, has raised our name that it won't be cut off for all eternity, that we now have an inheritance that we didn't have before. Colossians 1.12, that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. One of the many things that we learn in the Bible about redemption is that helpless as we were to redeem ourselves. God's outstretched arm has redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's bought us back from death and given us life. You know what's sweet hearing like the sound of a crying infant? It's like just right at this, I don't know why the Lord allowed this right at this moment. It's like when you, when you think about an infant, like they're absolutely helpless. They're just completely helpless apart from their parents. And that's the point I was getting ready to make, like, right now, is that, like, helpless as we are to accomplish our own redemption, God, through his outstretched arm, has redeemed us. 
And whether it's for the thousandth time, you need to be reminded that God did the very thing you could never do. Or whether for the very first time, you need to feel the magnitude of your helplessness. I pray that you would this morning. If for the former, you'd be incited to worship God more and more because he's rescued you helpless and hopeless as you were. And maybe for the first time in this room, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, that you'd run to him as one who now acknowledges your helplessness and hopelessness apart from Jesus and find him to be everything that you need. Verse 11. Let's go back there together. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman Ruth, who's coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I repeated that section because there's a word of blessing over Ruth. Essentially is this, may the Lord use Ruth to build up the house of Boaz like Rachel and Leah were used to build up the house of Jacob. May she be a source of blessing to God's people, a word of blessing and exhortation over Boaz. May your name be famous and echo through the ages in Bethlehem. And one of the things that I was just, Chris can attest with this, I was studying earlier in the week, and I was just dumbfounded by the way that God includes sinful people, like in his story. But not just in his story. Like in Jesus' family tree. It's just unbelievable. Like identification with sinful men and women. Like, you look in Matthew chapter 1, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Like, you wouldn't normally include women at all in the line of an heir, like a kingly line. But Matthew not only does that to a primarily Jewish audience, but he includes the names of some pretty questionable characters. And we see them. We see a few of them right in our story. We don't hear about one, but I'll tell you about one that's right there nestled next to Boaz. In Genesis 29, Jacob marries two sisters, Rachel and Leah, due to his father-in-law's deception and then also has children by her two maidservants. God used this broken line to fulfill his purposes. But it's not without messiness. It's really, really messy. There's a lot of brokenness in Rachel and Leah's story. Genesis 38, Perez was the son of Judah and Tamar. Tamar sold herself as a prostitute, deceiving her father-in-law, and he solicited a prostitute, and they had a child that now follows the line down to where we are in our story. This is pretty wild stuff. Guess who Boaz's mom was? Rahab. Rahab the harlot, the prostitute. You know who you see in Matthew chapter 1 in Jesus' line? All three of those women, plus a fourth, Bathsheba, who committed adultery with David. Now, what's the point in marinating on this just for a moment? It's God's gracious inclusion of an identification with sinful people, which is absolutely mind-blowing. God has always used broken situations and broken people to build up his people and accomplish his purposes, and we still believe he does that. Does anybody in here believe that he does that still? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We started with that truth, right? It's anchoring to the people of God. He's the same. He's still powerful. 
And if he associates with broken people and women in the line leading to the Savior, certainly he can do it with us. He does. He does it with us. Anybody know how Jesus Christ redeems the, the dark and the dirty, the lost and the wandering, the fallen and the frail? Anybody know that Savior who picks them up and uses them? I know I do. He still does it today. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, Jesus is heir of a line in which flows the blood of the harlot Rahab and of the rustic Ruth. He's akin to the fallen and to the lowly, and he will show his love even to the poorest and most obscure. Paul said it this way. This is the truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. He saves sinners. He includes them in his royal line. The gospel of grace, the message of redemption through Jesus announces how God pours out his blessing on the broken. Praise be to God for that truth. Amen. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife. He went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed, which means servant. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. As we near the end of the book, the focus once more turns back to Naomi. Like she was central at the beginning of the story in chapter one, you might remember. She and Ruth are the only two that returned back to Bethlehem after their whole family had turned to Moab and Ruth and Orpah were married to her two sons in Moab. She's a foreigner. and She comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and now the story turns back to focus on Naomi as we kind of round the corner into what essentially is a genealogy at the end. In chapter 1, you can look back there to your left, chapter 1, verse 21. This is Naomi's sentiment as she came back from Moab to Bethlehem. And you might remember the desperate condition of her heart in verse 21 in chapter 1. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So go back to chapter 4. What's really notable here, at the end of chapter 4, there's not a single ounce of resistance that Naomi shows to these women and the elders calling her Naomi. Because her name means pleasant. And in chapter 1, she comes back because of the, the depth of her pain. She's like, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. That's more consistent with my experience and my feelings. But now at the end, like those eyes of faith that have been dimmed due to difficulty now see the goodness and the blessing of God. And she embraces her name as being pleasant. Because as Psalm 16 says, she can see that the lines have fallen in pleasant places for her by the grace and the kindness of God. 
God has blessed her. He's provided her. He's caused her to flourish out of the famine. He's redeemed her because of his steadfast love. The book of Ruth in many ways is about God filling the emptiness of Naomi. Through Obed, this servant child, God brings life back to Naomi. He's a restorer of life. The loss of her husband and her sons deeply impacted her, understandably so, but now she hears maybe something of what we hear in Psalm 23 that I referred to last week. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What does he do? He restores my soul. Soul here is the same word for life in our verse 15. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. I feel like God this very day is able to restore your soul. Like where you feel just kind of the darkness of death in different ways. Like God is still a faithful good shepherd who restores the soul of his people. You walk with him, who trust in him. May he support and sustain you just like Naomi in her old age, be a nourisher to her. The book of Ruth is about God filling the emptiness of Naomi. And the book of Ruth is about God using Ruth and Boaz to bless the world. The book of Ruth begins, as I mentioned in the first week, with a departure of one man from Bethlehem. The book of Ruth ends with the arrival, as it were, of a king in Bethlehem, namely King David. In verse 18, it says, that, Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now, genealogies can feel really cumbersome when you get to them. There are lots of them in the Bible. We're going to be preaching through Matthew, and Matthew's a pretty long one. We encounter them. They can feel somewhat pointless at times, but almost like a footnote or appendix. We can kind of just breeze over them. But this genealogy, don't miss this, it's like the crescendo of the whole book. The whole story the whole story kind of aims and shoots at the very last word, which is a name, David. There's this echo that just kind of ripples into the future to say that from this, this little baby that Naomi holds on her lap, this little servant Obed is going to come a king, King David. And Bethlehem will be called David's hometown. And there's going to be another one there's going to promise later in the Old Testament to David as the king that there's going to be a, another descendant who comes that will forever occupy your throne. He'll never cease to reign. And ultimately, it takes us all the way to Matthew chapter 1 where we find Jesus born where? Born in Bethlehem. That's why we sang Hope of the Ages. I don't know if you know, that's a Christmas song. Some of you are weirded out probably were singing that. But the reason is because it, it does foreshadow like all of the whispers and shouts of the Old Testament. Isaiah's great light, Abraham's offspring, the blessing of Jacob, Judah's might, hope of the ages, David's true son, desire of nations, the promised salvation, God with us. I want to circle back to two things I said at the beginning of our study through the book of Ruth, and I'll finish with this. 
when you can't see the end of your story, you must, with the eyes of faith, keep in view the end of God's story. Ruth, much like our lives, has very present difficulty and darkness. And when we go through those really deep moments of darkness, like you have to keep in view the end of God's story when you don't know the end of your own. Ruth's story is a movement. I don't know how to play off a ring. I played it on the baby. I'm trying to get some illustration, but I just couldn't do it. Sorry, sometimes it's better to acknowledge it. <laughs> that was more for me than it was for you. Oh, it's okay. But Ruth's story is a movement. We've talked about this, the contrast in this book. It's a movement from famine to harvest in chapter one, from hunger to favor in chapter two, bitterness to blessing. It started with a funeral, but it ends with a what? With a wedding. It started with a funeral and ends with a wedding. And there's a, there's a way in which, as we understand our Bibles from beginning to end, that's, that's, that's the story you can get. Because you see in Genesis 3, Genesis 3, if you read from the lens of Romans chapter 5, is, is kind of like the funeral for mankind. The sin entered into the world, and death spread to all men because all sinned. And so you have at the beginning of the Bible, as it were, a funeral. And guess what we find at the end? A wedding, a wedding, where Jesus, the bridegroom, comes back for his bride. That what we know in part now, based on promise and on his word, we'll see fully and finally culminate at the wedding supper of the Lamb. In Jesus Christ, every dark cloud leads to the bright morning of resurrection the light of Jesus' gospel, and that glorious day will never be extinguished. Let me read this from Isaiah 54. We'll close with this before I invite the worship team up. This is a promise to the nation of Israel. Back in the book of Isaiah, staring down just the depth of their consequences because of their sin. Isaiah says this to them to give them hope. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, as it were, I deserted you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. He's worth trusting, and he's worth praising. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you, God, that it's not just some cliche saying that when we know Jesus Christ, that every dark cloud in our lives, ultimately and finally, will lead to the bright morning of resurrection and new life. Thank you that where we feel maybe the magnitude of the, the, the brokenness and the bitterness, 
that you have the ability even now to provide for us so we can see your hand of blessing. As we looked at last week in chapter 3, I pray that where you're calling us to wait on you for certain things that we desire, that we simultaneously would wait while seeing your hand of provision all the while in the moment as we wait. Thank you for your faithfulness, God. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your power to redeem. Thank you that you, you save broken, sinful people by no work of our own. And God, we leave here like emptied of any sense of self-reliance, independence and pride and arrogance and would our helplessness and our hopelessness, God, lead us to, to sing hallelujah. Praise be to God for his great salvation. Thank you, God, for redeeming us, buying us back from our slavery to sin and making us slaves of righteousness. Help us to be men and women who live today in light of eternity. Help us to live this moment that often feels like a, a broken today in light of that glorious day we get to see you face to face. where Every single wrong will be made right. Every tear wiped from our eyes. Every promise we know now we'll know in full then. We love you. We bless you. We magnify your name because you're great and greatly to be praised. In Jesus' name. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll sing.